on the job with Francis Leach. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you for another week. I hope your week started well. Whatever you're doing, if you are a parent, no doubt it means juggling. And you do feel like a bit of a circus performer looking at the diary going, I've got to be here, my son, daughter uh, is going to be over there, my partner's going to be over here, and there's a gap in between, and I don't know what to do, and I've got enough money to pay for it, and it just drives you nuts. It's a hard juggle, but that's modern life in Australia. But it's gotten a little bit easier in recent times, thanks to the hard work of unions and our allies in securing for Australian families uh, an extension to paid parental leave, which is a significant extension, uh, particularly in those early, early years of life to 26 weeks from 18. Didn't happen by accident. The Albanese Labor government made it a, uh, a feature of their campaign leading into the uh, federal election early this year. And it was a campaign that was led by people for over a decade or more from all sectors of the community, but unions very much at the heart of it, to make this a reality. And it's a life-changing reality for lots of families. So let's talk to one person who has been at the forefront of that campaign for a very long time. Georgie Dent joins us from The Parenthood. This is On The Job with Francis Leach. Georgie, welcome back to On The Job. And I've got to say, congratulations. It must feel like a milestone that this legislation has been passed as part of the budget and it's going to become a reality. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for that very kind offer of congratulations. This is an absolute collective effort. It has been a collective effort. It is also a really significant milestone. We know that families in Australia have for far too long had access to one of the least adequate paid parental leave schemes in the developed world. And this is very welcome recognition of that. And the most heartening point, I suppose, for us at the Parenthood is that the government have been very clear that what's been announced so far is the start not the end of where the paid parental leave policy will hopefully land. So there are a whole range of things I want to talk to you about. The implications of this decision, what it means for working people, particularly for women, who this is a real game changer for, working women as parents as well. But let's get back to the start of the campaign. I'm really fascinated about how you grow a successful campaign, a community campaign that brings people on board and delivers outcomes. So Tell people about the Parenthood for a start, your lobby group and your organisation, and how you worked in with unions and others to make this a reality. When did it start for you? Yeah, so the Parenthood is an independent, not-for-profit advocacy organisation, and we started in 2013. I have been formally involved with the organisation since 2019. So I joined the board in 2019 and I was um, I became executive director of the organisation in July of 2020, which was three months after running a campaign around the fee-free childcare that was offered at the very beginning of the pandemic. The Parenthood, we represent about 77,000 parents and carers around Australia and the reason that we exist is that we believe, you know, that having the voice of parents represented to decision makers is absolutely critical to positive policy changes being introduced. At The Parenthood, our mission is ambitious and it is to make Australia the best place in the world to be a parent. And the reason that that is our framing is because 
The evidence is really clear that children can only thrive when their parents and caregivers are supported. So the idea that we can care about children without caring just as much about parents and caregivers is a sort of fantasy. So we have set ourselves a very bold ambition of making Australia the best place in the world to be a parent because we know that making Australia the best place in the world to be a parent would also mean Australia would be the best place in the world to be a child. And Australia has been world leading in different ways for a really long time and we believe that we are a nation that is capable of being world leading when it comes to being a parent and to raising children. So ambitious goals, but with big dreams come great results if you do the work. And, and this is what's sort of been laid out in this budget as well. Funding of $4.6 billion to increase the maximum childcare subsidy, increasing the number of families who can access the scheme, nearly $34 million to help First Nations children access early education and care and support their school readiness, uh, $54.6 million to support child and maternal health, and that $4.2 million for developing a whole of government early years strategy. So it's a holistic approach to it, which is what's required. And all of this adds up to a bit of a game changer, doesn't it, for working women and what it means for their participation in the workforce and their ability to earn an income, to establish some economic security, all of those things that have been you know, undermined by those barriers to entry that women have had to face as a consequence, predominantly women, not always, but predominantly women, as a consequence of their commitment to parenting. In Australia, the reality that lots of families will know very well is that it's actually incredibly difficult to raise a family and provide for a family. And the evidence is very clear that it is actually harder in Australia than it needs to be. And it's not difficult because individual families are making the wrong choices or that they're approaching it in the wrong way. Individual families are up against a system that doesn't support them. And it is, as you say, it is particularly mothers who feel those barriers more acutely. It's a little bit of a vicious cycle because we know that in Australia, until the point where men and women have a baby, the working patterns and the education of men and women is fairly equal. So, you know, we know that we've got slightly more women graduating from universities. We know that across the board in lots of different professions and vocations, there's as many women as there are men. But what we know is that when it comes to the point of having a baby, what happens you know, in the average sense is that women's workforce participation after having a child drops very significantly. Her income drops very significantly. And At the same time, when a man becomes a dad, his income and his work increases and increases quite significantly. And so we have this point where after having a baby, a lot of men and women are put on really different paths. That is not always because that's the actual choice families want to make. Lots of our members who've got young children certainly went into starting a family with the ideal that it would be a shared pursuit, that both parents, where there are two parents, would be sharing in the care, but they would also share in the participation in paid work. But our policy settings make that really difficult. Our policy settings really do perpetuate and entrench this idea that mothers are primary caregivers and fathers are primary breadwinners. And we are in Australia more attached to those gendered roles than mums and dads are in other developed countries. And we know why. It's because we have not invested in policies that actually support mums and dads to share the care and share the paid work. And so the reason that expanding paid parental leave 
and making early childhood education and care more affordable, the reason that those changes impact women more is because at the moment for mothers predominantly who really struggle to maintain attachment to paid work after having children. And we know that the long-term social and financial implications of that decision are horrific. It was Elizabeth Broderick, who was the Federal Sex Discrimination Commissioner, who quite famously said that the reality for women in Australia is that over the course of their lives, on account of doing the caring work that we all depend on, whether that is unpaid care work or low-paid care work, the price they pay for a lifetime spent caring is poverty. And that is explained in in a not insignificant way because of our policy settings around when families have babies. And paid parental leave is really, really influential in setting up how families approach care and work. And we know that when you've got a paid parental leave scheme to encourage both parents, when there are two parents, to engage in sharing the care, what happens is both parents then also maintain a more consistent attachment to paid work. So both parents are more likely to return to work in some capacity if two parents are sharing the care. Um, And we know that when it comes to early childhood education and care, that the cost is so high and because of all the structural reasons that create the gender pay gap, then families are often making what seems to be the only rational financial choice, which is, well, it doesn't make sense for two people to work we'd be paying effectively for one of us to work, so we're going to stop. And inevitably, or in nine times out of ten, the person who stops work or reduces work is the mum. So they're the sort of big picture reasons for why these policy changes are really significant, not just in the short term but in the long term. And that extension of paid parental leave is prescriptive. I mean, we heard Jim Chalmers say when delivering the budget, it is meant to be shared. It is for both parents to share it. And that's part of the, the design of this is to try to to change that cultural setting that we have that it is just the, the, the woman's role to care for a child in that circumstance. Yes. And it's. I think it's really important to note that the changes that have been flagged are really significant. It is the most meaningful change we've had in paid parental leave policy since it was first introduced over 11 years ago. But what is even more significant is that we have had from the Treasurer, the Prime Minister, the Minister for Women, the Minister for Social Services, they have all flagged that encouraging men to take parental leave, it's one of their imperatives. And the evidence globally is really clear that if you want dads to take parental leave, there has to be a component of paid parental leave that is ring-fenced just for men or non-birthing partners. When there is a financial penalty to a family, if they don't take it, then we see men take leave. We're going to be watching closely what the Women's Economic Equality Task Force, they have been charged with coming up with an optimal design to ensure that more dads take leave. And I'm very confident that that will include a component of use it or lose it in the paid leave that's available to families. And, you know, somebody who is a father and has had that uh, experience of being the primary carer of two children at different stages of their development, 
if blokes who are hesitant to do it or have not had any sort of role modelling on how to do it or men in their lives doing it, it'll be a wonderful gift for many of them and a great surprise to them when they actually do it too. So this, it's an actually a win-win for them too and in a personal growth context as well. So that's one element to it too. What I do want to talk about here, and this is from a union perspective about why this is important, is because as you mentioned, it is at that fork in the road moment for women when it comes to their participation in the workforce, their professional ambitions, their economic and their earning capacity. And for so many women, it means a future of casualised, insecure work, often in the caring sector and the care economy, which we've seen has been underpaid and undervalued. And only just recently we saw the Fair Work Commission deliver a 15% uh, pay rise to aged care workers, which is a, an overwhelmingly feminised industry. These things dovetail into each other, don't they? And that is that sort of that the foundation stone of female economic participation as a consequence of being a parent is so less firm for women simply because of the way we've structured it. And that's why I think unions find this particular achievement so significant because it changes the dynamics uh, very directly and gives women an opportunity to reach their full professional potential as well as their personal potential as parents. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's actually probably worth pointing out that the evidence is really clear that the caring pattern that is set in the first year of a child's life persists over the course of their life. The evidence is really clear that when men are engaged in the caregiving, the mental health of both mums and dads improves, but also child development outcomes improve too. So supporting dads to be engaged carers in that first year of life is fundamental to enabling children to thrive and reach their full potential. And as you said, it is a life-changing experience with ramifications well beyond that point in time. And, you know, we know that in Australia men... There are some men potentially who have no interest in taking extended parental leave and that's their decision. But there's also lots of men in Australia who really would like to, but we just don't have the either cultural and attitudinal support for that, not to mention we don't have the actual nuts and bolts of a policy that enables them to do that. And so that is also why the fact we're having this conversation is so significant because it really will change families. It will change the lives of families, but it's also going to lead to change in our communities, in our attitudes about what an engaged parent looks like. And it's not just a mum. It doesn't have to be. Um, So I just wanted to say that there. But I think you're also absolutely right in that there is this, it's almost like a perfect storm in a sense that has really pushed women in particular into insecure, low-paid work. And we know that then because of the increased caring responsibilities that women have, that really does limit their capacity to take on paid work. And as I said, the sort of compounding impact of that over the course of their lives is too often devastating. And it's not because these women don't have skills or ambition. They can make and they want to make a valuable contribution outside of their home, but too often it's been impossible to do that. And we have seen, I think really because of COVID in a sense, COVID really laid bare just how much our community depends on caring work. Within the caring frame, I would include things like nursing as well as aged care, as well as early childhood education and care. These were literally the essential jobs when we went into this health pandemic because it's the kind of work that we actually cannot function without. And 
isn't it just a wild coincidence that these are some of the lowest paid cohorts of workers in the country. You know, we've seen that with the early childhood education and care workforce, which is more than 95% comprised of, of women. It's skilled, demanding, valuable work that is paid really poorly. When you think about um, an early educator with a Cert three qualification, she will earn, and I say she because more than likely it is a she, will earn between 20 and 30% less than a Cert three male in a male-dominated line of work. So whether that's a brickies labourer or a plumbing apprentice, you know, 20 to 30% less. And, and it's, we do have a situation where all of the lower-paid jobs are congregated among those workforces which are predominantly comprised of women. And with the sort of cost of living crisis that has really sort of escalated, I'd say, over the last, certainly this year, but over the last 12 months, it has put so much financial pressure on households and individuals that we are seeing in early education, we are seeing educators leave in numbers we cannot afford and they're leaving because they cannot afford to stay. On the 7th of September this year, there was a sort of fairly unprecedented historic day of action among early educators and they really were walking off the job. Many many stayed on the job but participated in the, the sort of day regardless saying we need a living wage, we need to be able to pay our bills and at the moment for too many educators they can't pay their bills so they're leaving and they're taking jobs in other lines of work where they can get paid more and we can't afford that. No, we can't. Look, Georgie, before I go, uh, one other question is going to be how then do we meet people's expectations now? So that uh, $4.6 billion to increase the maximum childcare subsidy and the expectation that comes with that, that people will be able to access that care and that early education should be available to them now. Do we have the carers and the educators to do it? How are we going to manage this surge of expectation and demand? And does that worry you a little bit? It worries me enormously because the federal government has committed as you said, $4.6 billion to make early learning significantly more affordable for around, you know, more more than 1.2 million families. And it's a really significant investment. It has been designed specifically to sort of remove the punitive financial cost that lots of families face when they're looking at the secondary earner, who is more often than not the mum, working a third or a fourth or a fifth day because the cost of care is so high. And then because they end up earning more money, they get less subsidy. And so therefore, for lots of families, it just does not make financial sense to work more than three or four days a week. Now, we know that with the workforce shortages we've got across the board, getting as many parents to work as many days as they want is actually a a sort of critical social and economic imperative right now. And the changes to the childcare subsidy will support that. So it's estimated that we will free up the equivalent of more than 44,000 full-time employees and they are mostly mums who work currently part-time who want to take on additional days of work. But all of that is predicated on them being able to access a position of early learning because, you know, it's one thing for it to be affordable but if it's very affordable but you still can't get your child into an additional day, then it's moot. And we know that to absorb the expected lift in demand, 
will need at least another 9,500 full-time educators from the 1st of July next year when these changes come into effect. Now, with the attrition rate that we're seeing currently in early education, there is a very genuine question about whether or not we will have a workforce that can absorb the additional demand. And that is why at the parenthood at the moment, one of our core areas of focus is is how can we ensure that the early education workforce is going to be paid adequately, is going to be respected? How do we ensure that early childhood education and care is a growing and sustainable and attractive workforce? Because we know that when children have access to quality early learning, it is life-changing. We know that, you know, by the time a child turns five, 90% of the brain development has occurred. We know that children who attend quality early learning at, for at least one year before they start school, they're half as likely to arrive at school developmentally vulnerable. Now, at the moment, one in five children start school in Australia developmentally vulnerable. In regional and rural Australia, it's two in five. Among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, it's almost half. Now, when you think about it purely from the education and development angle for children, we need to have a quality early childhood education care workforce because we are literally setting children up for lifelong success. But to do that, we need educators. And at the moment, if I had a bachelor degree and I was a teacher, if I was thinking about preschool or I was thinking about going into primary school and doing kindergarten or year one, I would earn up to 30% more if I went for the primary school. So it's very easy to see why we haven't got many teachers looking at preschool. So we need to be looking at parity with schools for the bachelor degree teachers, but we also need to be looking at ensuring that early educators can pay their own bills. And at the moment, without there being a significant increase in their wages, that's not going to happen. Another struggle to come, but one certainly worth fighting once again. Georgie Dent, so much uh, work already done on this and so much to come. Thank you for being with us on the job once again. Thanks so much, Francis. I appreciate it. This is On the Job with Francis Leach. Georgie Dent there from The Parenthood. You can visit the website, theparenthood.org.au to uh, read more about what they do, the great work that they do, and uh, what they're doing next to make sure that these promises are delivered upon. And of course, you go to australianunions.org.au to join your union because that's the best way that you can get the most out of your working life by becoming a union member and not only a union member but an active union member because you are the people that will make the difference. Give us a rating on your favourite app or wherever you find your podcast. Tell people about us. Uh, share the information inspiration. Uh, it helps us with the algorithm battles, all that sort of stuff. So five-star rating. Thank you very much. We'd love that. And I'll catch you on the next edition of On The Job. Bye for now. <laughs>